You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Two of the questions that are asked in that video uh, one is, is there a gospel-centered narrative? The other one isn't as much of a question, but is a specific statement that is elongated, which gets to the fact that every Christian is called to engage culture. So in some ways, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, what does it mean to engage culture? And how do we do that in the midst of uh, a climate like the one we find our, ourselves in, where uh, the pandemic and also the politics that fill our minds and our timelines and uh, are, are even leading up to a crescendo, if you would, to November where we are uh, in a re-election year. And um, the question is, how do we represent Christ and engage the culture? How do, we, um, how do we remember our place, our position, and what He has called us to? And uh, I think that as I've been studying this week, I had a, a longer period to study, actually. Uh, took a couple extra days because uh, I, I felt as though um, I needed a heart check myself. And the truth is, is that as I have now uh, come to a message that's totally different than where I thought I would go, even totally different than the way I would start, uh, I, I realized that that's exactly what I've needed. And so I preached this message to myself uh, I've allowed it to wash over me, and I pray that it would be that, uh, that, that um, transformative for you uh, as you renew your mind, right, and not be transformed or, or, and be transformed but not conformed to the culture around us. And so uh, my hope and prayer is that God would use this in the way that he's used it in my life, um, whereas, you know, short pithy statements that fit in 140 characters and that would even embolden themselves on a Facebook update are really not the most useful uh, ways to, um, to engage the culture today. When we think about Jesus and the incarnation, we look at John chapter 1 and the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, I'll just read that very briefly. John chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It goes on to say that we've received from Him grace upon grace, and that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The incarnation brought grace and truth to bear on the world. It was the uh, the, the, the bringing together of all things, you know, the, the incarnation of Christ where heaven meets earth and where uh, God's people's Messiah is revealed and redemption is secured uh, and um, all things are, are set to be restored in him is, is, is all um, meant to be characterized by grace and truth because that's who he is. Now, Matthew 5 is where we'll be this week. And in Matthew chapter 5, we actually read that we kind of pick up that same ministry. I want you to read with me from Matthew 5 verses 13 down to 16. And we'll pray and jump into our sermon for the day. You are 
the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we do pray that you um, would help us in these moments as we think about what it means to be salt and light, as we dwell on grace and truth, as we dwell on the ministry of Christ and what he's called his church to and how we can flesh that out in our uh, divided nation and uh, in our, our cynical times. I pray, Lord, that you would use this to unify our hearts and to uh, lead us to be those who work for the unity um, of the church and uh, the, the, the peace and the shalom of our nation, Lord, that you would help us to be peacemakers. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Now, Jesus has just started out his Sermon on the Mount. We keep referring to that a little bit, and this is really the beginning of it. And as he starts, he says a very provocative thing. He says that you are salt and you are light. I want us to look at those two things and I want us to get somewhat practical for us. I hope that this message just along the way will be a teaching time that will be practical for us to understand the significance of salt and light in this text and in our lives. The first one we're just going to take up right away is salt. You've read this. You know this passage. You probably have memorized some of it. At least one of the verses you all, you could recite it without even looking down at it. But I want us to just slow down a little bit and make this practical to our day. The first metaphor that he compares you and I to is salt. Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't question that. He makes a statement and he just goes on and says, but, and he begins to explain why it's important that we maintain um, our taste, if you were. Salt was a very common thing in Jesus's day. Uh, it was even a high value commodity. Sometimes I read uh, that, that Roman soldiers would even be paid by salt or paid in salt, right? So you could look and you could see that salt was something that would be traded up as a good. It was a high commodity. And if, if, if it was a person who did not perform well on their job, then they would be considered to be not worth their weight in salt. He's not worth his salt. You guys have heard that before. Well, I think just like today, salt was also used, though, to flavor and to preserve food. It was used if a fisherman would go out and would bring back fish. There was no refrigerator. They didn't have a Yeti cooler to stick it in and to go the days or maybe even two uh, trek back home. What they would do is they would bring salt and the salt would be used to cover the fish and uh, they would smother it and bury it in the fish because what it would do is it would help it not to rot. It would preserve it. And then obviously you who know about brining, I know Barry has been talking a lot about dry brining. He's got me started in doing some of that. When you put salt on meat for a time, what ends up happening is it gets into 
the meat and not just on the meat itself. And so a fisherman who was going back to Jerusalem, right, who was going back to the market would have kept the fish from spoiling by salting it. And then when it was sold, it would actually be good. And so that's the image that Jesus is, Jesus just used to describe his followers, his disciples, you and I, right? Not just the disciples who were with him at the time, but also those of us who have believed on their account. He says, you are uh, the salt of the earth. You add distinctiveness. You add flavor. You preserve, right? You are one who is on earth uh, and you're supposed to help humanity flourish. You preserve human society is what he's saying, right? You keep it from spoiling. This is how he refers to us. The question I had when I was working through this is just what is it about a believer What is it about a disciple of Christ? What is it about a person like me who knows I'm far from perfect and I'm far from being who Jesus is? What is it about me that would make me purify something and even make it more palatable, specifically thinking about culture and engaging culture? I think that it's clear that what Jesus is talking about is that there is a basic goodness. There's a flavor that comes from the life of his disciples and that should characterize our engagement in culture as those who follow him and obey his teaching. So if you're following Jesus, right, and you're putting his words into practice, what you will see is that you'll become more like Jesus and the world around you will uh, will change. You'll be the kind of person who's pleasant to be around. You'll be the kind of person who's humble. You'll be the kind of person who's kind. You'll be the kind of person who's gentle. You'll be the kind of person who's peaceful and who's merciful. You'll be compassionate. You'll be loving. That's what salt uh, is likened to. And that's what our lives will be like, right? We'll be the kind of people that preserve unity and works for peace by loving our neighbor as ourselves even as it pertains to the public square in places where we may or may not disagree or agree with another party. The world, because of your life, the world around you will experience grace because your life is characterized by grace. So I'm taking Jesus coming to the world and grace and truth And I'm helping us to understand how he didn't call us to say, you are grace and truth. He said, you are salt and light. But that is us mimicking his life and following him as disciples. You should know historically the church collectively has always uh, shown these things for. Let me just read a couple things for you. Right. Uh, From the first century forward, believers have always made this world a better place to live. If you think about institutions like hospitals and the world's orphanages and even some of our biggest and most prestigious universities, no matter where they are today, they were opened in the name of Christ. Disciples, right? Christians, believers, those who are following him as salt have always brought things like literacy and medicine and education to the world. And it's been this practical training even that has brought a flourishing to society. We trained millions of people in various different ways, all in the name of Christ. Can I tell you something? Jesus Christ left us his word, and it's the word of God that has really revolutionized and changed society. The teachings of the Bible are those that exclusively changed and elevated women to their proper place on the same plane as 
image bearers next to men. The Bible does that. The Bible places human beings equal in value to any man. It's the Bible that inspired the prohibition of slavery, even in America, and that promotes the equal rights that Martin Luther King would have so labored for to say that he wants to see everybody treated equally and valuable to God. It's the Bible that has been reliable, right, as a moral compass to point uh, everyone even, even as people have tried to distort it, people have misinterpreted and whatnot, the Bible has taught the principles of honesty and fidelity and respect for others, respect for property, justice, compassion, generosity, and, and the fact that we don't retaliate. That comes from the word of God. And the word of God really is the word of Jesus. And Jesus is the word who is incarnate, right? The word became flesh, was full of grace and truth. So the Bible has promoted this peace and it's encouraged us to live this way and to treat uh, each other with this same kind of peace. But I, I want us to keep honing in on what does that mean for Saul? Well, here's, here's why that's important. Those who follow Jesus and put the words of the Bible into action are those who would actually change and transform the world. That's why Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Notice the end of the verse. At the end of the verse, he said, that it's no longer good for anything if salt loses its saltiness. How can it be salty again, right? In Jesus' day, he didn't have the kind of purified, uh, iodized, I think is the word, uh, salt that we have that just lasts and has a shelf life of forever. It was, it was in its truest form, and truthfully, sometimes it could get contaminated, and then it would just waste away, and it was no better than dust, and it would just be thrown away. This salt has been contaminated. It no longer pur purifies. It's no longer tasty. It's been mixed in with other things namely dirt and so it's no better than the dust and so throw it out and let's just walk on walk over it you just throw it on the ground with the rest of the dust he's saying that can happen to you and me too you are the salt of the earth but there's a warning here that tells us if our goodness and our preservation, right, that which is supposed to be flavoring society, if, if, we, if we stop pursuing a good and we stop uh, uh, pursuing good in our private life or even in our public life, then we can become uh, those who have lost their saltiness and we cease to have purifying. We, we cease to be those who uh, would come into contact and make the culture better and make the world better. We become those who uh, otherwise are useless. But Jesus doesn't intend for us to be that way. He intends for us to continue to produce the same things that he produces, grace and truth being in tandem and that leading to flourishing in, in society. And so here's the deal. There's some practical things that we should think about as God has called us to be salt and he's even given us warnings to say there's a way in which you could cease to be salty. I thought of a couple practical things that the church has tried. The church has tried condemning culture. You guys see it, you know it, maybe you've experienced it, right? You, you, you see people who leave a false impression of what it means to be a follower of Christ because they're just always coming at the culture and ridiculing and figuring out ways to tear down the culture, right? Christians uh, end, up, they, they end up being some of the people who are referred to as the most unloving folks, and we're supposed to just be loving. We're supposed to be those who are gracious. We're supposed to be those who are known to be forgiven, and so we extend forgiveness, but instead, because we uh, condemn culture, we end up being those who, who say our views of what is right are, are, are right and, and what nobody else or whatever everybody else says doesn't matter, right? 
We try to force even ourselves and our morals onto other people by condemning their way and condemning their life and their lifestyle. Well, John 3, 17, I said it last week and I want to just keep on saying, it says, if anyone has, right? If anyone, uh, or, or John 3, 16 says, if anyone believes, then he will be saved. But John 3, 17 says that Jesus has come into the world and he did not come to condemn the world, Right? If anybody had the opportunity to condemn the world over its sin, it would have been Jesus, but he didn't do that. Instead, he came to save the world and he left us with the same mission. And that's what it means to be salt. So we don't condemn the culture. Another thing that we've tried to do is we've tried to constitute culture and constitute. I just mean like make laws, right? Sometimes I think the desire to promote morality in our society has called us to lean heavily on legislating righteousness, trying to Christian community, trying to get all the laws that we that, that we believe everybody must do and try to legislate those over against sin. And, and, and I think that there is a place for morality, especially you think about politics, you think about nation and just the order of things. But we have to remember that we are not called to be those who would bring the laws, especially those things that characterize Christian community and try to place that on the backs of those who are not believing in a way to say that this is the way that you must conform or this is the way that you must uh, uh, come into uh, being endorsed by God or, or so on and so forth. I'll let that one rest for a second. Confronting culture is another one, right? What I could have said is convicting culture. Just, just, uh, you know, think about the fact that sometimes we come and we think that we have a message for everybody and they've got to get it. And so I'm going to ram it down their throats and I'm going to make sure like, you know, sure, God, it did come into the world to save and he didn't come to condemn. But the truth is, is that they won't even understand that God has come to forgive them. It's great that we look at the woman at the well. It's great that we can look back at what forgiveness looks like. And but they're not even going to know it unless I just right. And so we go on these protests almost like we just want to ram it down their throats. We think that people won't understand God's goodness unless we convict them. Let me read to you John chapter 16 and verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. You know what that teaches me? That it's the world or it's the Holy Spirit, I should say. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world. Not my job. I'm not the Holy Spirit. That means that I'm not the person who is trying to go, go and just make sure a person gets bashed over their head to where they know that they are, they, they, they are a sinner and they absolutely need to be uh, you know, under conviction. I can't bring anyone under conviction. I can condemn people. I can judge people, just like I just said a second ago, right? I can even try and uh, confront them in a way that, that, uh, that, or I can try to constitute laws and put them over them. But, but in confronting people or convicting people, it just, it, it's not even my job and it doesn't work. So I should put that to rest and I should focus on being salt. I should focus on being good. I should focus on preserving. I should focus on what does it look like to help something to flourish or someone to flourish. Second Corinthians chapter five says, God gave us a ministry of reconciliation. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors as those God or as though God were making an appeal through us. Right. And what do we implore people to do? Be reconciled, be forgiven, experience grace and mercy. Be reconciled to God. We don't try to go tell people you need to be good in order to measure up. We tell people about God's goodness. I think the early church was not much different than 
our day in terms of their time, but they had a totally different approach than some of us, right? I don't see them uh, going out and just constantly trying to confront culture by, uh, by condemning it. We don't see that actually. They lived in a society that was really corrupt. Let me describe some of what the uh, society was like. Uh, abortion was commonplace. Did you know that? Homosexuality was accepted as an alternative lifestyle in their day. Did you know that? What you should know is that the New Testament Christians, the New Testament church was never going out and boycotting or picketing or trying to win over society by some kind of legislation. Instead, they stressed that God was offering forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. And they pleaded with everyone, be reconciled to God. They got some of the largest platforms to get onto and they got on those platforms and they said, Jesus is king. He died, but God raised him from the dead for the remission of sins. Doesn't matter what your sins are like. Doesn't matter what your life is like. They gave the message of grace. That's what we've been called to. I want that to, to sink in for us because those are some of the things that we may have participated in or we may see other people doing. And so when we think about how to be practical with this, we should know we don't want to condemn. We want, don't want to try and legislate. We don't want to try and confront or be, play the, the role of convictor uh, that the Holy Spirit only can play. What we need to do is create culture. What does it mean to create culture? Well, what is culture? Culture, I say it multiple times as a definition. It's good to understand it as the shared values and perspectives of any group. And so if we want to see change in our world and if we're going to operate like the salt that we are, you are the salt of the earth. You create culture, right? You don't condemn culture. What does it mean to create culture? Well, you can do it by example and you can do it by expression. Here's the way we do it by example. Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without complaining or without arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. The word in is uh, sometimes easily looked over, but what it means is in the middle of, just like salt that's rubbed into meat, right? It's talking about something that is significantly impacting, but it's coming into contact. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's literally like, if you think about what uh, it means to be in the middle of, right? In the middle, we're in in, in a crooked and depraved generation. And that what we do is we ourselves become blameless. When you live in the middle of a crooked and, and, a, and, a, and a, a depraved society, you might think of the fact that I just need to go and clean everybody up. I need to clean up all the streets. The reality is that God calls us, by example, to clean up our own lives. He calls us to be the people who live consistent with that which we preach. We're so forgiven and so we live gratefully, right? We, we have been given so much mercy and so we are merciful toward people. We've received so much pity and so we're compassionate individuals, right? And so the thing is, is that we're not the people who are supposed to be going out trying to change everybody else's behavior. What we should be doing is we should be creating culture by example and living differently. I have here written, it's easy to lose our saltiness if we allow our moral standards to lapse, right? It's easy to take care of ourselves instead of thinking about serving others. It's easy to just, uh, you know, pull back and not worry about having to live a life that's consistent with the gospel that we believe. But if we really want to have any influence in the culture and in the world, a biblical way to do it is to actually live 
a moral life. And so when we think about politics, do we think about them as biblical morals and social justice over against each other? Or do we see that, uh, you know, and so those things are, I, I got to choose between one. Do we see ourselves as, as those who are trying to call everyone else to a biblical moral and to live like what the Bible says when they may or may not even believe that the Bible is true? Or do we see ourselves as having the opportunity to live consistently with biblical morals that produces a social justice? And so then therefore, by example, it creates culture and it changes our community. It changes our families. It changed because people begin to see that that works for them. And they want to investigate it more. That's why expression follows example for me. I mean, it is true that we uh, don't just live by example and not use our words. Um, but I want to make the expression for, for, for at least for now, more specific to how we engage in culture, especially as it relates to politics and voting even in voting, right? That implies that we will disagree with half or more of our counterparts, people in our community, people in our church, maybe. Uh, I think that we need to be kind and we need to uh, remember that the verses preceding you are the salt of the earth also say, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, right? And so the thing is, is that what God calls us to even in expressing is we do it in a certain way, just like Jesus when he came to the earth, grace and truth, right? Grace and truth were married together. It wasn't either or. First Peter picks up on this when Peter talks to those who have been persecuted and, and uh, those who have a government that is absolutely oppressive, that is taking everything from them, that is not treating them kindly or fair, fairly. They're plundering their goods uh, and they've been dispersed and they are literally living like ain't aliens and strangers and refugees in the world in the name of Christ. These are the words that he says to him, to them. First Peter 3, 15 to 16, do this with gentleness and respect. The this is live a quiet and a peaceable life. Yes, be ready to give an answer. It doesn't say go out and go preach at everybody what God said and you have no, uh, you know, you're, you're going to, to all going to hell in a handbasket and so on and so forth, just yelling over at people. It actually says that you need to live a life that's quiet and peaceful and be ready for somebody to ask you why you do. And at that point, you can, at that point, you can give your reasoning. That word reasoning is where we get the word apologetic is apologia. So the idea is apologetics and debate and argument and whatever, it, the, or we understand apologetics as debate and arguments that we do online or that we do with other people, whatever. The truth is, is that we're not even supposed to be going out just looking for discussions we can win and debates that we can get into and, uh, you know, slap people over the head. We're supposed to be those kind of people who are gentle and respectful, even when we do give answers so that we can have a clear conscience. That means that for Christians, there's no place to be belligerent online, to be cruel to people, to uh, lash out in anger because somebody votes different than you vote. That means that in your church, you may have people who think different than you. And in your community, in your family, you may have people who think different you, than you. And, and you've got to be the kind of person who remembers that the fruit of the spirit is still right. Gentleness, right? And respect. Not only can we uh, create culture, but we can complement culture. I'm still on uh, still on saw here, complementing culture, right? We've done it. Uh, I think we've done enough in the name of Christianity to tear down culture. 
And so now what we need to do is we need to build it up. When I say compliment, I don't mean just people pleasing and, and spewing out some niceties. What I mean is that the gospel calls us just like salt to enhance the culture. So complimenting something, what do you do? You build it up, you, com- you, you enhance it, right? So salt, uh, if you're the salt, then you should be enhancing that which is around you, including the, the, the society, the culture you live in, the, the uh, politics that you may be involved in. The gospel calls us to enhance, right? The, the job of salt is not only to preserve, but it's also to enrich, I've been, I mean, I fell in love with rock salt and pink Himalayan salt. There's certain sauce that you put it on some meat and it's just like, wow, it doesn't overpower it if you use it in the right proportions, but it just totally changes everything. Everybody likes barbecue, right? But, but most of us like barbecue because of that rub that was put on it. It's the smoke that's there, but it's also the salt and pepper, right? There, there's a certain level of when we engage with the culture around us, we should enhance and we should enrich the flavor. We should be able to make things better. We should, uh, the things that people um, see and, and experience in us, and even the things that we say should be those that improve things around us. And so the existence of like moral laws and an opportunity to vote on those, right? We have to remember is that is what's not, that is not what's going to bring morality into society. But if we pursue our own personal morality, salty, Remain salty. Don't lose our saltiness by being immoral people. Or if we live publicly those good and those decent lives, we're honest, we're generous, we're upright people, the people that God wants us to be, then we will have this purifying and palatable effect on the world. We will be the salt of the earth. The next metaphor that he uses is light. He said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? You're the light of the world. Well, light in the Bible is very, very, very consistent. I mean, it's a metaphor that's used in the Bible lots and it's right alongside darkness. So light and darkness are always placed over against one another. And there's a stark contrast because light is used to contrast and to to expose, right? And to show us uh, uh, and, and expose the areas of darkness, which would otherwise be ignorance or falsehood. So light is akin to truth and 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 uh, and and darkness would be ignorance and or falsehood. So what we have is that he's saying you're also the light of the world. He's saying that the world has an opportunity to perceive that which is right and true, namely about Jesus through the way you live, through the way you engage in a culture, right? The world's in the dark about who God is, about who Jesus Christ is. But Christians, we have an opportunity to turn the lights on, to expose, to shine the light, to to allow people to see Light allows people to see. Christians allow the world to, uh, to, to understand how much God loves them and how much they can be forgiven in Jesus Christ no matter what they've done. That's called turning the lights on. That's called living as lights in the world. And being a light of the world, we actually carry a great responsibility and it's, the, it's really the same purpose with which Jesus came into the world, right? John chapter 1, back to uh, verse Uh, Or John chapter one, just above 14, verse nine says the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming in the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. 
right? That's who Jesus was. He was the light. He was the true light that gave light to every person. He came into the world and that's who was uh, uh, incarnated in the flesh and, and grace and truth are in, right? And so Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world in John chapter eight. I'm not going to flip these. I got them written in my notes. John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 12, verse 46. He says, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. John 12, 36, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light, right? Jesus came to earth. He came to show men that God was bringing the truth to bear on their opportunity to be forgiven in him and that God loved them and that he demonstrated that love for him in his life and his death. And now we have been even exposed to that, right? You and I come from the same culture that would be dark and not enlightened. A dark world that revelation was needed in came piercing as a bright light for you and I. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 means. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6 says, For God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So in the face of Christ, in the incarnation that brought us grace and truth and brought light to the world, we have seen God's glory. That's also again in John chapter 1 toward the end. It says, no one has seen the Father, but the Son, he has exposed him to us. He is enlightened us to be able to see and to know his glory. But now Jesus is gone and you and I have been left with the same responsibility or privilege even that we could be called sons of light. We fill the role of bringing the light to the world. He brought the light to the world once and for all. And he left us here to bring to the rest of the world the knowledge, right? The enlightenment of the truth about what God was doing for the world in Jesus Christ. Love and forgiveness. We, we have an opportunity to bring that to bear. So when Matthew 5 and 14 says you are the light of the world, we need to uh, realize when it says that we need to realize that it also says just like salt, that something can happen to that. Just like salt can lose its saltiness. Light can become ineffective. How? First thing he says is by being hidden. Really gives us two examples that demonstrate uh, that hidden light is ineffective and it, it and it and it, it doesn't uh it doesn't even make sense right the first thing he says is you are the light of the world a city on a hill cannot be hidden then he says nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house so the first thing is the city can a city shouldn't be hidden right cannot be hidden in fact in jesus's day cities were always built on hills they were visible from everywhere i mean and 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 most of most of us if you live near uh you know uh any any area in town, you can just stand outside and you can see like, oh yeah, that's where this city is because you, it's, it's, it's clear that the buildings there are larger. Oftentimes it is built on a hill or out in a direction where you can see that the visibility tells you that's where that city or, or whatnot is. And the thing is, is in Jesus's day, that was the only way that it was built. So a city cannot be hidden is what we should understand, right? And, and it's a city on a hill. We're going to get back to that in a second. Here's the second one. He says, neither do people put light under a or uh, in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a basket. 
The purpose of, of lighting a lamp is to do what? Illuminate everything that's around you. It's nonsensical to take the light and then to, to place it under a bowl, to place it under a basket, to place it under something that conceals its light, it makes it ineffective. The purpose is defeated. I think in 2020, in the society that we live in as Christians in America, in an election year, Christians might be tempted to hide their light. We might be tempted to hide our identity, literally, who we have been called to be in the world, to, to, to be a little bit more hush-hush and, and try to play the, uh, the, the partisan, right? To play the party line, but not to, 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 to forget that we've been called to be prophets and not partisans. You guys have already heard that message. Jesus is telling us that if people don't know about our relationship with him or relationship with God through him and the way in which we have had our uh, eyes open to that and enlightened, then it defeats the purpose of our placement on earth. I mean, it really defeats the purpose of us even being called after his name. That is, I mean, that's a, that's a tragedy, but it also is a rebuke to us, right? If we're going to be effective in the role that Jesus has given to us, as his followers, then we need to be visible. So this is where it checks down and we don't get to go and say, oh man, we shouldn't even get into politics. We shouldn't even vote. That was an error that I made in life in my younger days, 18, 19, 20 years old. I'm thinking it doesn't even matter. We shouldn't even be involved with that. All we need to do is preach the gospel. And the reality is, is that that's just nothing could be further from the truth, friends. He says, in the same way, if we continue reading, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. There's a certain visibility. There's a certain activity. And so we don't get to just say, oh, well, that's none of my business. In fact, we're supposed to be those who say, hey, I know the truth. I know the way. I know that which leads to life and which leads to human flourishing. And so here's what God would say about that. And even though there could be disagreement about what the answer here is or there, we, 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 we can all see that this is what we should be going towards. And the world will see good deeds coming out of that, which goes back to our saltiness. They won't just hear what we're saying, right? They'll see our good deeds and they give glory to God in heaven. And so anyway, we've got to let the world see our goodness. We've got to be visible. And so, um, you know, the goal of that is to, to do what? Bring glory to God. Let's move into why that's important. The emphasis is on people giving God the glory and people seeing uh, because they see our good deeds and they see our light. And so Jesus has basically built us up another metaphor and told us that we're not just salt, but we're also light. And so now we have to ask ourselves, in order to be a visible presence in the world that attracts people to God because they experience our goodness and they give glory to him because of that, in order to do that, how can we do that? Well, again, here's some negative things, some things that we have tried, and then I'll give us a couple things that we should do. Uh, instead do. The first thing that we've done is we have canceled culture. Now, when I say cancel, I mean isolate ourselves from, and I mean separate. You guys know them. Maybe you are them, like I have been one of them. You're a separatist. 
You just isolate yourself from the culture and say, we don't want to have any dealings. I don't want to touch sin with a 10 foot pole. So I don't even talk to my neighbors. I don't go to this, uh, you know, section of town. I won't participate in anything that is not Christian. I got to have a Christian t-shirt and I got to look up the Christian businessman so I can get a Christian plumber and so on and so forth. And the reality is friends is that even though there's nothing wrong with some of those things, it, it can, it can lead us to being much more insular than what God has called us to be. And it can hide our light because we're trying to cancel the people that are right in front of us that we're supposed to be reaching, right? Jesus decided not to pull us out of the world, but sometimes we pull ourselves out by canceling relationships and opportunities and engagement with the the, the world around us and isolating ourselves. And, uh, you know, I think maybe we started with good intentions from James 127. We're going to go into James in a couple of weeks and we'll see what it means to be uh, unstained by the world, right? Good religion or pure religion is to be undefiled and so on and so forth. But I think that in an effort to embody that, what we've actually done is we've isolated ourselves and we've, we've, we've begun to uh, cancel culture, right? And I think that, again, there's nothing wrong with these things. Um, but the more that we all, uh, the more that we occupy space and the more we occupy uh, uh, institutions and communities and clubs and whatever they are, uh, we have more opportunity to be with people and to engage with them. And the, the, the horrible truth is that we have created more Christian clubs that have pulled us away from more of the seeker or unbeliever than we have actually gone and engaged them. And the more isolated we become from people, the more we hide our light. I think I said enough about that. Let me just move on and say this. Isolation makes us invisible. It hides the light that uh, we were meant to shine, right? Some people might even say back to me, but wait a minute, Steve, why isn't, uh, you know, isn't isolation necessary in order to do that goodness you're talking about, in order to keep ourselves pure and in order to be pure and moral? Well, listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. He says, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Uh-huh. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. In that case, you would have to leave the world, he says rhetorically. He says, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is immoral. The truth is, is the way that we keep the world uh, or sorry, keep the church pure is by canceling sin in the church, not by canceling ourselves from the culture. Not by canceling culture, not going around and trying to say, oh, that's that's wrong. That's don't don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go over there. The truth is, is that we we if we're going to be lights that are seen in the world, then we should be involved in the world. And our involvement in the world is has distinction and it exposes darkness because it's like, man, you don't think the way that the rest of us do. I'll move on from that one. Another thing we've done is we've critiqued culture, right? Usually this comes from isolation. This comes from canceling. It comes from separating ourselves because we try to spread the good news about Jesus with some persuasive words from afar. And we we, we do that, you know, we we can be over here and just lob out a truth bomb, 
right? So we can just tell people what, what the way it is. We even throw it on our Facebook and close it up. Or we throw it, you know, I've seen people lately, they've discovered the, the, the reality that you can post things on Instagram and then you can lock your comments. And so now it's just like everybody's going real hard with these truth bombs and all these different memes and things and you can't even comment back because they don't want anybody to say anything back. They just want to critique, 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 critique and not have anybody to reason with them. We shouldn't even be those kinds of people. We shouldn't be the kind of people who would say that it's our job to try and uh, lob something from a distance. There's nothing wrong, again, with the tools of communication that we have, even with things like gospel tracts or street preaching. Saw a guy recently out by Finney's. He was across the street and he's just yelling at everybody at Finney's and telling them that they needed to repent and believe or they're going to hell. And uh, he's yelling and everybody's yelling right back at him, as you can imagine. Shut up. Get out of here. You sound dumb. I mean, it's just and it, it got to a point where I walked up to him lovingly and I said, hey, man, you know, what's your name? Try to strike up a conversation with him. Tell me all about it. He didn't want to talk to me. He didn't know me from anybody. He had no idea what I was going to say to him. But literally, I kept saying, can I talk to you? Like, hey, I want to hear, I want to talk about what you're talking about. And he just kept yelling at everybody across the street who's yelling back at him. It was totally non-relational. He did not want to re relate. His point was to lob out the truth and to not care about what other one, anyone else says. And my thing is, that's just impersonal. It's, it's, it's oftentimes impractical and it isn't what light is left to do. I mean, light, when you, when you put a light on a, a lamp and on a stand, it, it, it illuminates things for everybody. It's a sharing that, that is relational. It's a sharing that is caring and concerned. It's not something that's just attacking or accusing. So, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2 would show you that Paul um, said that his preaching wasn't in wise or persuasive words like that. He said it was with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So he lived with the power of gospel in his life right in front of people so that they could actually see uh, what he was saying, right? They could, they could understand that. It wasn't that he only spoke, but he definitely, uh, it wasn't that he only lived, but he definitely did that uh, twice as much. So let me just move on to what we can do. The two things that I have here for us are we can contact culture and we can connect with culture. To contact culture, I just mean that we will make contact with or we will make good use of the contact we have with it. That means that in your school, on your job, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, you actually have an opportunity to relate to people. Right. When you get out and you rub shoulders with people in the world, you don't you're not afraid that they're 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 going to rub off on you, per se. What you're there for is to be light and you uh, get to show that in a in a PTA, if you are or, or on, on a job or, you know, all kinds of places. We get to know people and we get to allow them to see the, the goodness of God through us. They get to see the light of Jesus through the goodness that you practice. And, and that actually brings uh, people to somewhere. Remember this, John chapter 17. This is how Jesus prayed. He says, I will remain in the no uh, world no longer. But they, speaking of us, the disciples, are still in the world. And he says to his father, he says, I'm coming to you. My prayer is not that you would take them, the disciples, 
those of us who follow him. He said, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He wants us to make good use of our contact in the world. I'll never forget being at America's Mortgage Services in Corona. And I was, it was recent after the conversion, uh, transformation of my heart and giving me a new perspective in life. And uh, in the mortgage business, you just have people who flaunt all kinds of things. It's a very debauched environment. And it's just all about money and power, respect and sex, money and rock and roll, you know, and I just never forget that I just was minding my business and just working and we're doing good. And one day it's like, man, Lord, I really feel like I'm supposed to leave this and I couldn't figure out how. And I just really had a feeling like my work is done here. And I was just really praying through that. And what that was like privately with my wife. And one day at the end of the night, uh, a a salesman came over to me and he said, hey, man, I just want to talk to you. Like, I've been watching you, and when these reps come in here, like, you're not always looking at them, and you're not sizing them up, and they're flaunting their bodies and things like that, and you, like, you seem like you love your wife, and you're faithful to her. Like, what's up with that? Like, what is it about you that's different than me? And I'm like, okay, Lord, great opportunity, right? So at that point, I get to talk to him. I tell him, and you may as well have seen the, vis- like, you've seen visible darkness removed from his eyes. Light came. We locked up the office together. I gave that man a big hug. We talked about him being baptized and I put my key back in the mailbox and sent an email to the broker and said, hey man, my work's done here. I want you to know it's been great, nice knowing you, but God has made it very clear that was my last day. Now I was leaving for personal reasons, but the closure came in a time where somebody said, you know what, you have been in contact with me and you have shown me something different. I have seen light and I don't understand what it is, but I want that in my life. And God led him to that spot. I just want to encourage you with that, right? If we remain uh, those who would uh, take our place as lights in the world, and we will see that Jesus can show himself to people in and through our actions. The last one was connect with culture. Um, let me just sum it up by saying this. Connecting with culture is, is a, an opportunity we have because uh, the natural course of life is through relationship. That's how you connect, right? Connecting is relating to, so relationship. Um, it doesn't have to be long-standing relationships and it doesn't have to be deep relationships, but it definitely will be relationships. If we're going to engage culture and answer that question, how do we do that? We are going to be the kind of people who uh, have relationships that, that are for the good and, and for the, um, the, the, the visibility of Jesus and God and his glory through us. I have a couple notes here. I'll, I'll just uh, remind us that we always talk about life and lips. I think that this this connecting and this relationship uh, dealing is, is where we see like service, right? We see encouragements. We see weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn. We see like, I mean, you get to be in a relationship with a person. And so what happens is they get to see light because light is life and lips. It's not just what you're saying to them, but your life is there. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So that's what I mean by that. And I want us to be thinking about that as we engage, right? Uh, when we engage in all kinds of uh, things in society and in culture, we have to be mindful of that. Um, let me conclude by saying this. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth and you're meant to live a morally pure life uh, and to do great deeds to benefit the people of this planet. And that includes your politics. You're the salt of the earth. 
you're not polarized or partisan, you're not divided, you're not the person who would just go and do your own thing. Um, all of this, in you're the salt of the earth or you are the light of the world, all of these things point to the fact that we point to Jesus. That we, if you want another C, commend the culture to Christ, right? He did not say that uh, you, you are light and, and a city on a hill is, you know, the place that you're in. He actually said that you, the church, is a city on a hill, right? So if I could just pick a little bit, we have to remember that the church is the city on a hill. Church is the light, right? Not America. Um, that, that, that the city on the hill is, is the people of God from every nation, not any of the nations that they live in. And so he's calling us to be those who would point to Jesus, point to the kingdom, right? Point, if we're going to point to any animals, we're going to point to the lion and the lamb. We're not going to point to the donkey or the elephant, right? I mean, it's just those are kinds of things that I think should be, we should be well aware of. But let them, let them remind you as we enter into uh, these concluding months of our year in our election cycle. And let it remind us that being salt and light calls us to do what, what, uh, what, what seems impossible, but is made absolutely possible in the gospel, which is the whole grace and truth in tandem. Ephesians 4 picks up on that and basically tells us that we need to speak the truth in love. So even when we do have to hold a conviction about something and it's true and we are going to tell it and we're going to speak it, everything that we've gone through today with salt and light is meant to help us that before we even get to conviction, we start with compassion, that we, that we are the people who are, are preserving. We are the people who are flavoring. We are the people who are winsome, loving, forgiving, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody wants truth without love and nobody wants uh, love without truth, right? I've heard it said before that uh, truth without grace is just mean. Well, grace without truth is just meaningless. So they got to go together. Okay. One last thing, just if I, I wouldn't be faithful to you, if I didn't point this out, um, I, I don't want to allow this broad sweeping message. That's very winsome. And it's, I'm trying to just, I, I, I'm not trying to have a political sermon here. I'm trying to help, help us to remember we're citizens of the kingdom. And so when we ask the question, is there a gospel centered response or is there, um, you know, or how do we engage culture in these things? I think I, we, I want to remind us of something just like when Moses opposed Pharaoh and, and Daniel spoke truth to the power in Babylon, um, and all the way down to when Jesus stood before Pilate, the way that God's people have changed the world and engaged culture has always demanded sacrifice. And it has oftentimes led to suffering. So it's no wonder when you think about Matthew chapter five and what we just talked about, that Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mountain in our text begin this way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's important to realize then he goes on and he says, you are the salt of the earth. I would not be faithful to us if I had us to think that if we just figure out how to connect with people and not condemn them and we don't critique them, but we 
come alongside them and so on and so on. I, I would not be faithful if I made it seem as though that was going to lead to some kind of mass popularity and we're going to win friends and influence people. The truth of the matter is, is that light has come into the world, but men have not come to the light because they love their deeds and so they stay in the darkness as the rest of John 1. We know John 1 says that the light came into the world and his own did not even receive him. And so in order to be the kind of people who will embrace the tension of what does it mean to be prophets and not partisan? What does it mean for us to be those who will be God's men and women in the world as change agents, even as we do engage in the political square? We have to be embracing the fact that it's going to cost you a lot of sacrifice and it might lead to suffering. But my hope and prayer is that the king and the kingdom is more important to us than our popularity and our politics. Let's pray. Father, this message has so much to it, so much, Lord. I just pray that the, 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 the meditation of my heart and the, the way in which we walk through that would actually be fruitful to all of us as we think about who you've called us to be in the world. We want to be those who hold compassion and conviction in tandem. We don't want to be either or people. Uh, there are so many people trying to pull us into different uh, directions. We live in a divided society that only becomes clear in times of political change. And I just pray, God, that we would look to your word. We'd see that you called us to be salt and light and that in being salt and light, you've given us a special uh, preserving and, and pointing to uh, ministry. We've called to preserve the culture and appoint it to Jesus Christ. Make your goodness in your glory visible to everyone through the way we live and the things that we say from our lips. And so my prayer, God, is that we would embrace that call, each and every one of us, even if we vote more progressive or we vote more conservative, even if we engage in, uh, you know, uh, debates and conversations and things like that, may we hold these things to be more important to us and help us, Lord, even in our uh, doing so that we, we remember that what it does is it really costs us to be those who love uh, because love is doing the best for our neighbor. Even if we disagree with him, we want to see his life flourish. And so we're willing to sacrifice ourselves just like Jesus laid his life down for us. And God, help us to not be fearful. Help us to be those who are emboldened by your truth, even though it may cost us and it may lead to our suffering. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring these things to bear on our consciences and in our homes and lead us, Lord, and use it for your good and your glory. And uh, we will give you all of it, uh, all the credit in Jesus' name. Amen.